Did you know you can sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows? That's right. Simply click the PayPal link on our website, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. December 7th, Earth 2, 1941, a world very much like our own, yet slightly different. A date which will live in infamy. A world at war. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All-Star Squadron. Welcome back to Tales of the Justice Society of America, featuring the All-Star Squadron. My name is Hans Gruber. And I'm the other guy. (laughs) You you don't remember any of the other... uh... Oh, let me think, let me think. Wasn't Hans Gruber the, the, the terrorist in Die Hard? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, okay. What was his brother's name? Uh, Simon. 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 Yes. Simon. Simon. Hans and Simon. That's <laughs> what kind of parents were those? <laughs> we'll, we'll make this guy sound really German, and we'll sound, make this guy sound like not German at all. Actually, 
hook, line, and sinker. Well, you know, I wanted to shoot the guy from Supergirl, too, so I, I don't blame him at all. <laughs> so we're back with the uh, the fourth book, as they call it, of Crisis on Earth Prime with All-Star Squadron number 15. Once again, ignoring the Masters of the Universe insert. Because, well, it's not that it was bad. It's just uh, Scott didn't grow up with He-Man like I did. Yeah, I thought for sure you'd want to talk about that, too. Is it killing you not talking about it? No, not at all, actually. Oh, okay. (laughs) I'm good. I'm really, really, really good. Um, It's not that it's a bad story. It's just this was proto-He-Man. So you have the (laughs) sorcerer. (laughs) Proto-He-Man. No, seriously, this is when the He-Man, as it eventually became, was very different from the comics that DC came up with. Which is exactly why I never got into He-Man. It's funny you should mention that, because I was thinking to myself as I was rereading these issues and, and kept coming across this insert, because it was the same insert every uh, every time it was in here. But I remember thinking that between this and DC Comics Presents, what was that, 47, I think? 47, yes. That I covered it on Back to it, the Bins. You know, if Superman had been part of Masters of the Universe or maybe referenced on the show one time or guest, you know, guest appeared or something, I probably actually would have really been into Masters of the Universe. But the simple fact that these, you know, these comics came out and Superman helped launch them and then they just kind of dissed him and never even threw him a bone, I was like, well, screw the Masters of the Universe. Well, well, let's be fair, though, because... Two things. One, DC sucked at licensed properties. Mm-hmm. They just did. You know, I grew up. You know, when I came of age as a, as a comic book person, I was a DC kid. But I still recognize areas where Marvel was superior, and Marvel could always do well. Not always, but you know, nine times out of ten, would take a licensed property and sometimes have it last far beyond the toy line or whatever that it was based on. I mean, look at ROM. ROM, yeah. You know, 70 issues. You know, G.I. Joe, 155 issues. Transformers, 80-some-odd issues. I mean, it was a... (laughs) They could cook it. You better throw Star Wars in there somewhere. Star Wars, 106 issues. (laughs) 107. And three annuals. Three annuals and uh, a uh, four-issue limited series of Return of the Jedi, so, you know, they can make it work for whatever reason. Maybe it's that Marvel was more popular in the late 70s and early 80s and 80s than DC was. But when DC got the Masters of the Universe property, they did this little preview, and then they had the thing in DC Comics Presents, and then they had a three-issue miniseries, and that was it, because it didn't really do well for them. So then the filmation people take He-Man and kind of rework him from this, where, you know, you see Tila in this thing, but it's not Tila, it's the Sorceress. But that's the Tila action figure. Because originally Tila and the Sorceress were going to be the same character, but then they changed all that, so... You know, and that's the second thing, you know, the TV show just came along and completely did away with everything that was done in here. And that was the series that Marvel's Star Comics used to launch Masters of the Universe. Which, by the way, in the fourth issue, um, 
got one of those 25th anniversary head covers. I don't know if you knew that. Hmm. So no, did Heathcliff. <laughs> Heathcliff has a head cover. <laughs> Funky. Oh, God. But that's enough about He-Man. <laughs> I guess we should talk about All-Star Squadron number 15. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Let's see here. All right, All-Star Comics... Or excuse me, All-Star Squadron, rather, at number 15. This is the uh, November 1982 issue. It's got a cover on it by uh, Joe Kubert. And, uh, you know, it's actually kind of a cool cover. It shows uh, Robot Man plunging into Earth's atmosphere and burning up. You've got Dr. Fate trying to uh, ward off Ultraman but not doing a very good job. And you've got Ultraman... Just knocking the daylights out of Superman. It's it's actually it's it's pretty cool, even though it's in the typical Cuber, you know, very scratchy style. It's um, the f- closer you get to camera, the better this image gets. The farther you get <laughs> in the background, the more it sucks. Yep, it's an interesting image. That's one weird looking Earth down there too. <laughs> yes. It actually like, looks a lot like, like Kellis from uh, from the Legion of Superheroes to me more than it looks like Earth, but maybe that's just me. It's like the map of the United States on the, the ad for US-1 from Marvel. <laughs> Where the hell do those states go? <laughs> oh, let's see. Original cover price on this, 60 cents. So the writer on this uh, issue is Roy Thomas, Adrian Gonzalez, and Jerry Ordway artist, John Costanza letterer, uh, Carl Gafford colorist, Len Wein editor, Jerry Conway plot consultant. Story is entitled Master of Worlds and Time. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, if that's not just an overblown uh, title, I don't know what is. From his secret lair in the year 1942 on the world we've come to know as Earth 2, Per Degaton watches on his funky retro giant screen computer monitor the awesome assemblage of the heroes from three eras. Aquaman, Firestorm, Hawkman, Superman, and Zatanna from the uh, 1980s Justice League of America, Dr. Fate, Green Lantern, The Huntress, Power Girl, and Starman of the 1980s Justice Society of America, and Firebrand, Johnny Quick, Liberty Bell, Robot Man, and Commander Steel of the 1940s All-Star Squadron. His creepy minion, Zale, tries to warn him that this could be bad, but Degaton, egotistical prick that he is, dismisses this unsolicited advice and assures his followers that he will soon annihilate the heroes and conquer the Oith. Still aboard the battleship from which they witnessed Degaton's display of power last chapter, the heroes compare notes and bring readers who may have missed an issue or two up to speed on all that's been going on so far in our story. It is explained that Zaytana and Dr. Fate took care of any radioactive fallout, which is good because I don't think they had two million sunblock in the 1940s, and Green Lantern tells of how the JSA... Tired of hanging out with mutant freaks on blowed-up Earth Prime, so he whipped up a bubble to track Degaton's time machine, bringing his teammates to 1940s Earth 2 just in time for them all to get nuked by last issue's A-bomb demonstration. So now we and our heroes are all up to date on the plot, and Superman takes charge! They know who their bad guy is and what he's trying to do. And so they go see FDR again, just in time to receive another TV broadcast message from said villain. 
Perdegaton issues his statement via space satellite to all the leaders of the world, demanding that in five hours they need to cede control of the planet to him or die by nuclear fire. We get some nice angsty stuff from FDR speculating on whether he has the authority to risk billions of lives in defiance of Degaton's ultimatum. He tells our heroes that in five hours, unless they can assure him that no more atomic weapons remain in this era to threaten American cities, he will resign the presidency in favor, in favor of Per Degaton. So then, old school JSA, JLA team-up style, the groups divide, as they always seem to do, into horribly unbalanced little teams. First up, we have Superman, Robot Man, and Dr. Fate. They streak into space to take out Degaton's satellite. Uh, why we need all three of these guys, including two of the most powerful members of the assemblage, to do this is anyone's guess. Because Superman could have lasered the friggin' thing with his heat vision from the ground. But anyway, the three, hero, the three heroes uh, find the satellite and tear into it when Robot Man comes across a small lead box, which he, of course, immediately opens because, you know, it couldn't be a bomb or anything. And exposes Superman to kryptonite. <laughs> Superman is out of it. Which is a shame because then Ultraman shows up. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, what? Huh? I thought he was on Earth 1 with the rest of the syndicators tearing shit up and generally taking advantage of the JS JLA not only being off-world but out of dimension. Well, yeah, that's what we thought too. Yes. No real or satisfying explanation is given for his return. He can't even get his story straight about which hero returned him to limbo following DC Comics Presents Annual Number 1. But who cares? I mean, honestly, Ultraman is just so awesome. Let's go with that. He proceeds to knock Dr. Fate on his ass and tears Robot Man's arm off before flinging him towards Superman, where we see that somehow, inexplicably, the kryptonite has wound up floating near the unconscious Man of Steel, keeping him out of the fight. Fate fights valiantly against the Earth-3 uh, villain until, what the hell? Superman shows up to knock the stuffing out of him. Superman delivers a super punch that sends Ultraman flying off into the void. Fate casts a spell to keep Ultraman uh, out of Earth's atmosphere for a while, and Superman streaks off to save Robot Man from burning up as he falls from orbit. It's been a great fight, and I love the sequence, but uh, as Superman is quick to point out, they spent about an hour doing all this and are no closer to taking out the missiles. Cut to Liberty Bell, Starman, and Aquaman. See, I told you these two. Balanced. Dropping in on a Pacific Isle where they find a base full of Degaton henchmen, atomic missiles, and one superwoman from Earth-3 who proceeds to beat their asses until two sea telepathy summoned 20-ton blue whales look the house down. The island explodes real good, and we cut to Midwestern United States. There we cut, catch up with Hawkman, the Huntress, and Johnny Quick. See, I told you these teams were horribly unbalanced. Yes. Racing against time to track down more missiles. They are directed by Hawkman's hastily constructed Geiger counter to a farm field in the middle of nowhere. As they all stand around going, this can't be right, Power Ring, evil Green Lantern from Earth-3, shows up to hassle them. A fight ensues in which Huntress takes out the villain like a total chump with a batarang, causing his ring blast to go wild and hit a nearby silo, exposing the missiles! And he a missile silo. I get yeah. it now. 
and he's accident- accidentally launched one. Hawkman and Johnny Quick streak off into the sky after it, but the winged one can't catch up in time. It's all up to the all-stars speedster who zips ahead to the rocket and at super speed disassembles the weapon in mid-flight. Crisis averted and more of the missiles are disarmed, which really pisses off the somehow still spying Degaton. To be concluded in the pulse-pounding pages of Justice League number 209. If it's pulse-pounding, I really don't want to be a part of it. <laughs> that sounds dangerous. Seriously, how the hell is Degaton keeping up with things? They took out his satellite, right? That was the whole fucking point of taking that thing out, so he can't spy on them anymore. Yet he still, at the end of the issue, knows exactly what's happening. I don't know. <laughs> what answers, mister? Um, well, I don't have them, so eat me. <laughs> um... <laughs> What do, you, what do you got on this one, Mike? Well, the historical notes from All-Star Companion Volume 2, is, there, there's two of them. Uh, it says, When Liberty Bell says that the superheroes uh, have to make certain atomic explosives are never used by anyone, fellow team members Starman and Aquaman decide not to enlighten her with their 1982 insight. It'll just, it'd just depress her, says the Sea King. Uh, Starman well, not. Is, maybe not because we already—it's already been established that she, she hates Japanese people. So you know, maybe not. <laughs> no, that was Firebrand. What, what are we talking about, Firebrand? Liberty Bell. We, oh, Liberty Bell. Oh, duh, that's I right. I hope I said Liberty Bell. Uh, Wait a minute, I thought it was Firebrand. Who? No, you're right. It was Liberty Bell. I don't know. I can't keep them straight. Starman and Aquaman also withhold further information when Bell overhears them mention Jimmy Doolittle and his bomber raid, a reference to the morale-boosting attack by U.S. General Doolittle and 16 B-25 bombers, two of which piloted by Ben Affleck and, uh, God, I can't remember the name of the other guy in that movie, on <laughs> Tokyo in April 1942, three months in the future, as far as Bell is concerned. Uh, Josh something or ever, I, I don't remember. I don't know why I watch Pearl Harbor when it comes on TNT. Yeah, I don't either. (laughs) Um, My notes for it, step up in the art on like a galactic scale. Right. uh, Except for a few things. Um, The the, the two-page spread of all the heroes talking um, looks fantastic. You can really tell where Ordway came through as the stronger inker. Um... Superman and his group look good. Uh, I don't know why Green Lantern and Huntress are kind of standing off by themselves. Uh, Johnny Quick, Starman, and Hawkman are talking, obviously keeping Zatanna out of the conversation again. (laughs) And Hawkman looks like he's just leering at Firestorm, Power Girl, and Aquaman. Uh, Like, he wants to get into the conversation, but apparently Firestorm's a big prick, and once he's part of a conversation, other people can't join. Though, um... I get the feeling that the the uh, the sailors in the background who are swabbing the deck and cleaning up are probably doing their best to check out uh, Huntress and Power Girl since you know they're naked to 1940s <laughs> perspective. Um, the flashback on page four explaining everything that happened is drawn very well, much better than any of the flashbacks from the Justice League issue. Page seven where Dagaton is addressing everybody. Uh, you got Hitler on the left, you got Stalin on the right, 
uh, stuck in the middle with pay dig a ten. Bad joke, sorry. Um, Hirohito on the bottom, and Winston Churchill and Shining Knight, I might add, on the top. Yeah. And this is how you do this type of scene. Not like in the Justice League issue, where you just saw the four heads of the other world leaders. Uh, One, the leaders actually look like the world leaders. And two, it's just a very dynamic, you know, cross-section page, and looks very well. The one thing that this issue was missing was, didn't we do this like three months ago when an alien came and said, we're going to destroy the Earth unless you all give up? Right. It's it's not the same plot, but it's the same plot. On the previous page, uh, page six, panel four, Superman looks fantastic. But um, he, he usually does when drawn by uh, when drawn by Gonzalez and inked by Ordway. Um <laughs> You talk about the unbalanced teams. I'm I'm trying to figure out how Superman had this figured. It's like, okay, okay, I'm going with Robot Man, who's super strong, and Doctor Fate, who's super strong and can use magic. Okay, we're going to be one team, y'all. All y'all are on your own, idiots. God, that well, sucks. <laughs> this is the problem. Un- unfortunately, you know, I, I, this used to, it used to really bother me when I'd hear people bash. Superman being a part of a team and and complain about how hard you know especially if it was the writers complaining is he so hard to put in the Justice League and you know all that sort of thing but you know as I've gotten older I can see that where it's got to be hard because it really really bothers me when you've got a story like this where Superman alone could solve the problem yet he's forced to I almost imagine that he he's actually just holding himself back that that he's allowing everybody else to play too, you know, which you would think would kind of you know at, at the very least that it would irritate Superman to have to hold back, you know, but he he really could wrap this whole thing up. He could have looked out the window of of FDR's office and lasered the the satellite with his heat vision. And- have just done like some super speed thing around the world and wrapped up all the missiles i mean the whole thing could have been done in like 20 minutes all right we're done (sighs) you know instead superman's not even used for the missile part of the story you know he's sent up there with these two other assholes to take out this satellite it's just it's a really cool thing and i love the fight between him and, and ultraman but ultimately it really you know, if you start to think about the internal logic of the story, it all starts to kind of fall apart. He didn't need these guys at all. Um, page 10, that fourth panel of Ultraman showing up on the scene. Does it look like his skin and everything stretches out as far as those shoulder pad things do? Yes. <laughs> oh, that's goofy looking. Um <clears throat> Page 12, I love Superman just knocking Ultraman and picking him up and knocking him into orbit. Mm-hmm. Superman has had enough of Ultraman's shit, and it's time to go. Uh, page thirteen. Really love the four panels. Uh, panels two through five, I guess they would be of Robot Man falling into Earth's atmosphere because it's kind of creepy because he's about to die. He's thinking about it, uh, and but he's still got like that smile on his face. Like, <laughs> Everything's fun. 
You can't change expressions. Although I did notice that last chapter that was drawn by uh, Don Heck, he actually did have, like, scowls and stuff on his face. Um, page 7 and 8, Superman's fighting a giant squid. I don't know. Oh, wait, this is the Masters of the Universe. Movie. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll skip that. Um, okay. I understand that they didn't know the crime syndicate was going to be there, but how do you send... Liberty Bell, Starman, and, and that's it. It's just the two of them against Superwoman. Right. <sighs> Though she grabs his, his gravity rod, and I had wrong thoughts. Uh, <laughs> like, serious wrong thoughts. There is a picture. I'm going to backtrack to page 14. Uh, at the top of the page, you got Aquaman. He's wearing green gloves. At the bottom of the page, in that one panel where he's diving into the ocean, he's got yellow gloves. Yep. Which is the Earth 2 Aquaman's look, by the way, when he finally ends up showing up for all of three seconds. Before they undo... In the, in the issue where they undo the multiverse. <laughs> Here's Aquaman. Good luck. Um... Maybe they were trying to go against type, but I would have liked to have seen, you know, Green Lantern versus Power Ring. Yeah. Just just to me seems like the thing to do. I would have also liked to have seen a Crime Syndicate version of Hawkman. Uh, I think that would have been cool. But but it's the Huntress that takes him down, so that's, that's kind of neat. Uh, page 22, I love the panel of Johnny Quick disassembling the missile. I have a big beef with that, but I'll get to it in my uh, in okay. my notes. And my one big nitpick, page twenty three, Degaton looks like crap on that last page. He looks like he just shit his pants. <laughs> okay, I'll actually agree with that wholeheartedly. <laughs> it's like I'm going to take. Oh, I just duped myself. <laughs> Whoops. My bad. Somebody get me a clean pair of pants! <laughs> no, the proportions on him are just completely and utterly wrong. I mean, you could have a field day rewriting the dialogue in that panel. Yeah. <laughs> Why is she always taking an hour in the goddamn bathroom? <laughs> but that's that's all I really have for this issue. It, it just wasn't a really good chapter. Unfortunately, um, it had some interesting fight scenes, but I have to agree with you. You you kind of you kind of put into words what the the kind of nebulous feeling I was have about having about this book is that we have like this great setup, and then it's back to breaking everyone up into teams and having them fight a different villain. Right. Um, moved the plot along, but only by inches. So, but that's all I got. Yep. Let's see, I just got a few things here. Um, page five, last panel, worse uh, analogy ever. Uh, even Fate and I were tossed around like so many silicon chips in a washing machine. I was like, where the what? hell are you getting that from? It just was, oh, it was really goofy. Um, page six, panel three. All right, Liberty Bell, they're all standing around talking on the battleship. Liberty Bell says, just in time to be rescued by the Justice League. And Green Lantern says, I know you all-stars don't recall your previous encounter with Degaton, but, 
and she gets he gets interrupted by Bell, who says, "What you say must be true, Lantern." And they go on to talk about more stuff. Was he starting to insinuate that he remembers? Again, I must emphasize, no one should remember Degaton. So I'm just wondering what the hell that's all about. That is kind of weird. Maybe they remember in the future. You know, I thought about that because they do eventually encounter him in All-Star Comics, which when you put everything in continuity with All-Star Squadron, you know, there is an eventual confrontation with him. But do they? I don't remember those stories. Do they remember him after that point? Did he say that, you know, you've defeated me in the past, yet you don't remember us? At, you know, I, I'm just wondering what Green Lantern was hinting at there. I, I, I don't remember, unfortunately. See, I, I don't either. Hopefully that'll get answered for us somewhere down the road. Um, just an overall note about page six. God damn it, I love it when Superman just takes charge. He should do this more often. I mean, he's Superman. He should just step up because everybody defers to him, you know? And uh-huh. I, I just, I would li- I'd like to see this more often. And I really like that we don't get any bullshit from anybody. You know, Zatanna doesn't, you know, whine, well, I'm actually the leader. It's just, no, this is Superman. He's pissed. He's taking charge. I love that. In one of the, it's either this issue or the Justice League issue. I I feel bad that I don't remember, but so much crap goes on in these these two issues. Zatanna actually looks at him and goes, I see why everyone listens to him. You know, he's so, you know, he he, he radiates confidence or something like that. And right. I, I kind of liked that, where it is the opposite of Marvel, not insulting Marvel here, but it is the opposite of, you know, the Wasp is leader of the Avengers, Captain America gives a field order in battle, and she gets her, you know, her, her wings in a knot, because, <laughs> uh, you know, he, he's undermining my authority. No, lady, he's got about a couple more decades of battle experience. Right. You know, yeah, you fought some of the worst villains the DC Universe has to offer. He's fought Nazis. I mean, the Marvel Universe has had to offer. He's fought Nazis. So, See, I think that team elections work for, say, like the Legion of Superheroes, arguably the Teen Titans, like if Robin slash Nightwing's not part of the group or something like that. But when it comes to the Justice League, especially the Justice League, if Superman's on the team, Superman should be the leader. Period. End of story. I I hate this bullshit with elections, and you wind up with friggin' Zatanna running the team. It's just stupid to me. Come on. Superman. I agree. I agree completely. On that same note, I love this part. Page 7, panel 1. Degaton's yakking away on the big screen TV and they're all watching and uh, Johnny Quick comes up with some stupid comment about you know, he sure aims tall for such a short guy, doesn't he? And Superman says, never mind that, listen! Which is Superman speak for shut up, asshole! I just, I love that. <laughs> you know, he's so polite about it, but at the same rate, he's just telling, shut up! Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Oh my god, okay, this kind of thing drives me nuts. Page pages eleven and twelve. The fight with Ultraman. Love it. Love it. It's awesome. Beautifully drawn. Ultraman. I like Ultraman. I really do. I think him and Superman should really. I think Ultraman should be used more often. I think he could really step up and and fill that role that you and I have often talked about of of, of somebody that Superman can tussle with. You know. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. 
However, this sort of thing drives me nuts in in space battles and science fiction and things when they forget that they're in space and how space works. When Ultraman decks fate, fate falls on his ass. No, they're in space. He should deck fate and fate should go floating off into where the hell is the inertia in this story? There's none except when they want there to be. When he throws Robot Man, suddenly inertia comes back into play because he just keeps going. So, you know, sometimes it's there and sometimes it isn't. I guess maybe you could no-prize it with, you know, Fate's mystical bullshit or something, but still it just... Fate's mystical bullshit. That's great. <laughs> also, in this part with Ultraman, I'm going to pick it's on... It's not Ultraman as funny as it should more. be, but I'm laughing my ass off Fate's <laughs> mystical bullshit. Fate's mystical bullshit. Uh, <laughs> well, you know my prejudice against magical characters. All right, pages uh, again during the uh, the fight here with Ultraman. Ultraman really needs to get his friggin' story straight because first he tells us that Superman sent him back into limbo, and then several panels later, not even a full page later, he says Luther sent him back into limbo. So, all right, which is it? Um, I can't remember. I've been drinking since I woke up this morning. <laughs> um. I know I harped on this all through my synopsis, but again, I've got to point out, they never balance these teams worth a shit. They never do. You know, you've always got, like, you know, it's worse when both Supermen are around, because then you get a team with, like, both Supermen and one other, like, mega-powerful person, like Green Lantern. And then the other teams are, like, Batman, Robin, and Wild Dog or something, and you're like, what the fuck? You know, we can't balance when this shit out. When was Wild Dog a member of the I was the just pulling somebody out of my ass. <laughs> the dude with the hockey mask and the bulldog. Dude. I'm just saying, dude. God, those stories sucked. <laughs> For Degaton, I did it all. Dog. They don't remember that adventure. And neither do we. Good. <laughs> All right, the syndicator's working for Degaton again. They don't really explain it very well, and the explanation they give doesn't work at all. <laughs> Just needed to point that out. All right, you already explained who Jimmy uh, Doolittle was. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a reference to the Purloin letter. I looked it up. It still was a bit of a stretch for me. Actually, the Jimmy Doolittle reference was really a stretch, too, because the guy that makes that reference is Starman. So he's making a reference that's 40 years out of date. You know, it just really comes off really awkward in that. I love that it's Aquaman who saves their bacon, though. Yes. Because I like it when Aquaman can actually do stuff, you know, when he can actually step up in a story and and do something awesome. And this is actually really awesome. He he brings the friggin' whales in. I love that. He would remember this maneuver when fighting Namor during DC vs. Yeah, Marvel. Yep, I was going to say the same thing. It reminded me of that same scene. Yep, absolutely. God, that was a great scene. It was it's not great. That I, it's not that I hate Namor. It's just... I hate Namor. They were the whiny kings of the uh, of the Seven Seas, and, and Peter David just had Agraman being like, fuck you. He did. He owned him. I love Um, Page 21... Minor nitpick, but still, how the hell does Earth 2 Johnny Quick know about Earth 3 Johnny Quick? I just I just have to ask that. Maybe somebody told him about him? I guess, but it's just... No prize contender, to be sure, but it's possible. 
Okay, uh, page 22. I agree with you that the artwork, the way that it's shown, is beautiful. I really do like the image. However, and I'm talking about page 22, panel 5, where Johnny Quick is disassembling yeah. the rocket. Okay. No disassemble Johnny 5. I have to issue one of my classic uh, comic book cliche alerts. I don't care if you do have super speed. How the hell do you disassemble anything, let alone a missile, without any friggin' tools? I mean, it's not like he has super strength, so, you know, I can try all day to unscrew the lug nuts on my car with my fingers. Ain't going to happen. And it doesn't change just because I've got super speed. I'm just saying. I see that a lot. Flash would do that shit all the time. You know, he would whip in and, you know, disassemble somebody's car or something. It's a nice thought, but unless he's got a wrench with him, it just it doesn't work. It drives me nuts. Um... And that's pretty much it. You know, just general comments on this. I'm, I, I hate to say it, but I felt like the story lost a lot of steam, this chapter. It, it, and it's because it it was reverting to form. You know, it was reverting yeah. standard formula of how previous team-ups like this had gone. And I understand why they're doing that, because it is a tradition by this point. You know, they're, they're trying to live up to that standard that was set by the JSA in the Golden Age and the templates for these crossovers that came up in the 60s. But we were getting something really, really different this time out, and to right. go back to that is kind of jarring. Right, it is. And I think it's made worse by the ending, because the the, the ending to this drives me really crazy, because this is your standard supervillain in comics thing where... They're, they're standing there and they're ticking off on their fingers how this part of the plan has gone wrong, that part of the plan's gone wrong, you know, this bunker's been discovered and destroyed. Slowly they're watching their plan unravel, yet they stick to the plan all the way to its ultimate failure at the end of the story. And I hate those kind of stories. It's like, all right, dude, if your plan's not working, it's time to shake up your plan. Go ahead and launch all the damn missiles or, or something, you know? But don't mm-hmm. just stand there shaking your fists and gritting your teeth and going, God damn these superheroes. I sure hope they don't discover bunker number four because you know they're going to. Yeah. Although <laughs> <laughs> um, I do like the two guys in the background. Think he's crazy, Kale? No, just enthusiastic. Nah, he's he's crazy as a shithouse rat. <laughs> a shithouse rat. Why would a shithouse rat be crazy? This is what I don't understand. If you had to live in a if you were a rat and had to live in a shithouse, you'd be crazy too. I got They're rats. They live in the goddamn sewer. I never understood that expression. That was one of those ones that my my grandmother used, like a man with a paper asshole. I never understood that expression either. I never will understand that one. Or my mother's favorite term of endearment, you lying sack of shit. (laughs) Never forget the first time she called my sister Ginny that. Sister Mary and I were in Mary's room watching TV. We heard that and started laughing, and she started yelling at us. Because parents hated nothing more than when you found them disciplining another child amusing. Because <laughs> they're pissed off in the first place. <laughs> um, ads, nothing truly spectacular. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I noticed that we we kind of breezed over. Um, well, we didn't do it last time because it's the same ads as... They're both from the same cover date, so they're going to have the same ads in them. Um, 
I don't think I made note of a single ad in there. We've got quick to see if there's anything, but I'm not. I'm not seeing anything. Uh, well, we've got a Lego. You know, you're building for real. The expert series that my aunt Jenny would buy me all the time. Oh, there is actually, there is one. I'm sorry, go, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, you're fine. Um, Lifesaver ads, bubble yum ads, you know, pretty typical ads. You know, the 16-page thing in the middle of it where, you know, Prince Adam, who was kind of a foppish guy who wore pink on uh, on the series, is a guy in, like, a blue outfit coming in with a bunch of chicks on his arms. So, you know, this Adam is a little more hip uh, than his animated counterpart with good reason probably uh we got the sergeant rock remco ad that we've been talking about for decades the only really big dc ad is uh, across from page 22 we got dc is on the move yeah i like that um with camelot 3000 arian lord of atlantis supergirl and black hawk uh which is an interesting little hodgepodge of images and different artists i read camelot 3000 i am not a big fan of the series never read it I've heard nothing but good things about it, but I just... I mean, it, it, it's a good King Arthur Returns type story. I just am not a big Arthurian guy. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, I was I was hesitating whether I should say that, because I know that we have at least one listener out there, and I may be mistaking this show for Two True Freaks, but I know at one time we got a letter from one of our listeners taking me to task for bad-mouthing Arthurian legend, but I just find it incredibly boring, so... With apologies to that person, yeah, it's just not, it's just not my thing. And uh, you know, like like last month, it had a Frogger ad in it on the back cover. So, <laughs> and we talked about your your neighbor not never lending out Frogger because <laughs> she was addicted to it, which was a great story. <laughs> she was so sweet. I'm sure she was. Uh, no, but um, for me the Arthurian legend is important it's interesting I've seen very good versions of it it's just not something that ever grabbed me because I think you know King Arthur is kind of like the Lord of the Rings it either grabs you or it doesn't you know you either become a fan of it or you or, or you just kind of mildly know something about it and for me it's the same way I mean you, you would think that given that I like groups like the Justice Society and the JLA and the Avengers and all that, that I would enjoy like, you know, the, the heroes of the realm all teaming up and going off on missions uh, or whatnot and the whole thing with Morgan Le Fay and Modred and Merlin and all that that would be interesting but it's just not my thing, you know I'm mildly interested in it when it's tied into DC, or even when it's tied into Marvel a little bit. I, I yeah. do actually find that stuff interesting, but when you take it in its pure form without, you know, Etrigan the Demon and all that, it just kind of loses something to me. Well, you know, it, it's something that I sometimes feel bad about, and sometimes I tell that part of me that feels bad about it to go shut the fuck up, is that... Um... <laughs> I like superheroes, and I'm really unapologetic about it. it it's what I prefer right. to read about. You know, people can sit there and call them silly. And what really aggravates me is somebody who says, I like superheroes, but here is the highfalutin book learning reason that I like them. You know, I just feel like, God, you're just taking all the fucking fun out of this. It's like it's like somebody explaining the mechanics of sex while you're trying to have it. And it's just like... <laughs> Can, can I can I can I just have sex with my wife and not have you explain how things are working here because I'm having a lot more fun doing this, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I you know, 
it's what I got into. It's what grabbed me. It's it, it's what you know from a very young age, even before I was reading comics, I liked superheroes. Even the stupid superheroes that they would try to foist upon us, you know, like Puma Man and stuff like that. So I, I think that's one of the reasons why I, I, I didn't get into things that are more fantasy-based, because they're not superheroes. <laughs> <laughs> Silly as it may sound, but... No, but but again, as I always say, I do not begrudge those who like it. I mean, if if that's your thing, my wife happens to like Arthurian legend, and, and you know reads about it and such. And you know, we we would watch that show Merlin every once in a while, that was on NBC for five minutes, and now it's on the Sci-Fi Channel. You know, Logan was really into that show. He he really liked it because he he had me uh, download him all the episodes of that I I never watched any of it, but he really uh, he really liked that show. It's kind of like Smallville with Merlin. <laughs> okay, it's it's like Merlin as a kid, keeping his powers a secret from his friend Arthur, who is a contemporary, not younger than him, and from Arthur's father. Morgan Le Fay was a supporting character who, I guess, in the second season, finally went evil, and it was just a, you know Merlin having adventures and learning about himself and his, and and learning his powers, which is why I said you know they they took the Smallville template and just applied it to Merlin. Um, hmm. And I guess that's why it doesn't piss me off as much because I'm not emotionally invested in Merlin. <laughs> right. <laughs> you want to move on to elsewhere in the DCU before tackling? Something oh, I've else? already moved on. I'm looking at it. Okay. <laughs> you started talking and I just started clicking around. The no, I'm, like, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. But no, I am there. I'm ass. looking at. There's some awesome stuff this month. Some really, really. Mm. Oh yeah. Oh okay. We got lots to talk about now. Um. Uh, apparently, uh, apparently, Arax started listening to The Clash and some other punk bands in issue 15 because he's got the Mohawk going on. <laughs> At least with him, the Mohawk kind of works because he's, you know, he's an Indian set, yeah. you know, during that time. Whereas, like, Nuclon, who we'll get to eventually, that always drove me nuts. I love that Best of DC number 30 cover of Aparo. Um,. Drawing Robin and Martian Manhunter and yeah, God, it's such a great, great cover. What's that guy's name? Christopher Chance was that yes. his name? And I, who's that other? Oh, I never that really kind of looks human like Doc. Yeah. Well, who's the dude with the pipe? He kind of looks like Doc Magnus. That can't be Doc Magnus, is it? Jason um, Bard. That's who it is. No, that's Jason Bard had long hair. I forget who that is. Oh, is it? That's a that's a who's who character for me. So, eh. But yeah, it is a nice cover. Mm-hmm. Well, the the one in that top row that instantly caught my eye is um, was part of that ad we were just looking at the daring new adventures of Supergirl. I snapped this up when it came out. I was horribly disappointed by the contents, mm-hmm. but this is a beautiful cover by uh, Rich Buckler of Supergirl streaking over what is it, Seattle? I think. No, she went to Chicago. Oh, is it Chicago? I believe that's Chicago. Seattle, Chicago, you know, it's all the same thing. Not really. <laughs> all mail can be directed towards. <laughs> um, DC Comics Presents 51. This is that story I was talking about a while back where it's a, it's a goofy one. It's really weird. <laughs> the Adam goes back in time on that. Remember he had, like, that time dipstick thing where he'd actually, like, ride it into... Vaguely. 
Yeah, and he goes on that thing, goes back to like, I don't know, I want to say it was like the 19th century or something, and finds Superman's grandfather living like on the prairie or some fucking thing. I, it's a really weird story. But yeah, supposedly one of Superman's ancestors was also, you know, like on Earth and had superpowers. And I, I really need to check that story out again at some point. But yeah, it's it's a bizarre one. Very strange. It's a great cover, though, because it's got the Adam of all people standing on Superman's gravestone, which actually looks a hell of a lot like the one he would get in the uh, Doomsday storyline. Yes. Yes, it does. Here lies Superman, Earth's mightiest hero, and it's got the Adam standing on his gravestone swearing that, you know, he'll he'll avenge Superman. <laughs> it's pretty cool. I'm thinking, um, okay, we couldn't get a better superhero to go out and avenge Superman's death, but okay. Who did that Wonder Woman 297 cover? Kaluda. It's a nice cover. It's gorgeous, yeah. I w- now, he's not an artist that comes to my mind when I think of awesome Wonder Woman, but yeah, he's that's a great cover. Indeed. That Batman cover of 353 is pretty cool, too. That is a Jose Luis Garcia Lopez cover yeah. of the Joker strapping Batman to a giant stone version of his face and putting <laughs> explosives all around it and Batman looking like that nose went somewhere really uncomfortable. <laughs> I also like uh, Marvel and DC present number one, the Uncanny X-Men and the new Teen Titans. I'm going to have to reread that because it's been literally years since I've read it. And when I read it, I had no frame of context for either team. You know what's funny? I was just going to say the same thing. When I read that, I had just discovered the Teen Titans, and this very probably was my first X-Men story ever. I'm thinking... It it depends on if the Dracula story, which is like uncanny... I want to say like 159, something like that. If that... Whichever one of those came first was my first X-Men story, but I think this was. But I'll have to look that up sometime to find out for sure. I'm I'm not going to ask about the interiors, because doubtless you will not remember them, but that Jonah Hex number 66 cover is awesome of him getting knocked out of a window. It's a pretty good effect. I like that a lot, actually. I run hot and cold on on these Ross Andrew issues of Jonah Hex, because I, I li- I, it's very dynamic and I really like him, but his style is, is not quite gritty enough for me it, it's mm-hmm. you know he he has a much cleaner style that i think is much better suited to like superman or spider-man or something like that rather than something that's supposed to be a very gritty real world you know thing like jonah hex but yeah i agree with it. it is very dynamic i, I like that because it looks like Re- uh, hex is actually taking a couple rounds and falling through the window that's pretty superman number 377 has Terra that's all I really need to say about that. Um, it's got twice the crap factor because it's got two Terra Men in it. Yeah, I was trying to ignore that. Um, <laughs> Batman, Batman and Superboy team up in Brave and the Bold 192. That's an interesting pairing. I, I have you ever read that story? No, I love that story. It's really cool. I forget who the villain is. I want to say it might be Tio Morrow. I can't remember, but. Uh, for some reason, Superboy gets pulled to present day, 
and Superman gets trapped back in Superboy's past. So like his parents were still IQ. Alive and all that. And, yeah, that's that's right. That is who it, it was. IQ, and it's really cool because Batman, te- you know, teams up with Superboy, kind of takes him under his wing and keeps trying his best not to spoil Superboy on things that will eventually happen to him. And at one point, Superboy decides he's going to look in on his parents, and then that's when he looks at the old farmhouse and finds the gravestones of his parents. And he just kind of gives up at that moment. He's like, you know, what the hell's the point? You know, they're just going to die, and, you know, everything I fought for is, you know, going to be gone. And Batman, you know, not not literally, but Batman kind of, you know, slaps him back to reality, you know, with, you know, you're, you know, you're going to be Superman, damn it, and, you know, man up and all. And it's it's a really good story. I like that one a lot. That's one of my favorite issues of, uh, of Brave and the Bold. House of Mystery number 310 proves that whiny, crying vampires are not just the purview of current-day vampires. So <laughs> He's crying blood, too. Well, <laughs> somebody punched him in the kidneys earlier, and that's where it's coming out for some reason. Um, like the cover to Legion 293, uh, mm-hmm. I just like how the logo has crushed everybody. Um, we do have the first new Teen Titans annual, number one, which I mentioned last episode. Really didn't care cover. for. Yeah. Uh, good cover. Just, yeah. You know, I, I, I like Starfire. I don't give a crap about her background. Uh, <laughs> I like so, that uh, Hal Jordan's got to be about shitting himself in the cover of Green Lantern because he's got a giant yellow space shark about to just chomp his ass. I love it. I am fucked. Um, action 537, uh, continuing that uh, split Superman story, which was we've been raving about. Mm-hmm. Arian number Arian Lord of Atlantis number one. There's a character I love the design of, and every time I try to read that title, I stop about midway through the first issue. <laughs> just not, just not my my thing, really. Cover um, of Warlord sixty three disturbs me. That dude needs pants like right now. <laughs> Stat. <laughs> he might be wearing a thong. Oh, that's worse somehow. <laughs> I've um, got a Jim Aparo uh, cover to Detective Comics number 520 with Hugo Strange in the Batman costume. That's yeah. Kind of cool. uh, Swamp what Thing. What the interiors on that, I wonder? Uh, Let me see. i got to look at that. There's like quick. five stories in it. So the Batman. Don Newton. Yeah, I love Don Newton, Batman. The um, Saga of the Swamp Thing annual number one is an adaptation of the Swamp Thing movie. <laughs> and we have... Of all things, a Frank Miller Frank cover yeah. to uh, World's Finest. Uh, I never really cared for how he drew Superman. Yeah. Um, Dark Knight Returns was okay. Dark Knight Strikes Back, Superman looked like ass. Ooh, Rich Buckler drew the interior, though. I wish I could remember that issue. I know I have it. I just don't remember what the hell goes on inside of it. And that was quite a coup to have a Frank Miller cover, but that was when he was coming over. He was starting to make the transition to DC. Well, he did um, those god awful covers on what was that series? Superman the the Secret Years. Secret Years, that was it. Yeah, because that one where he stops the train, I think if it had been inked by somebody different, it could re- be really awesome because it's a very dynamic pose. It looks really cool. Where Superman actually looks 
kind of worn out. Like, you know, I did it. I stopped the train. I saved these lives. But damn, that was tough, you know. Mm -hmm. But it's just got that, like, super over-inked, really angular Frank Miller thing going on. And it just kind of ruins it for me. I'm a big fan of Frank Miller on Daredevil. Yeah. And maybe some of his earlier work. When When he finally adopts his style, I'm not a really big fan of it. Exactly. Um, you know, Dark Knight Returns was the last thing that I really liked of his. Um, and I really like the artwork in that story, too. Okay, I think we got time for a couple of emails. Um, you started last time, so I'll start this time. Okay, first one is from our good friend Stan Johnston. It said, I is a good speller, and good is spelled G-U-D. Uh, hi guys, I'm usually I usually am aware when a comic book creator passes away, as with Harvey Picard today, as this was written on July 12th. But I was totally shocked to hear that Adrian Gonzalez is no longer with us. I always enjoyed his work quite a bit. You ripped on the Robot Man and Liberty Bell disguises from issue six of the All Star Squadron, and I'm right there with you. I never liked these types of disguises either, especially the old rubber mask gimmick that Robot Man used. It never worked on television shows either. It's just too unbelievable, and it takes away from the story flow because you're not you're going no way in hell that fools anyone. I also share your enthusiasm for Baron Blitzkrieg. Yes, what a great visual design. Even though he's yellow, the color of panic. Well, you know, we talked a little little bit the last time around about, you know, other stories that, you know, we're going to either ignore or try to get to or whatever. That's one we definitely still need to get to. Oh, the to. Superman versus Wonder Woman? Yeah, with Baron Blitzkrieg. Because I'm pretty sure that was my introduction to that character and I, why I think he's so badass. Because he can hold his own against Superman. That's pretty cool. Regarding the Huntress story, Steve Mitchell definitely was not a good match for Staten. He has a very thick line, and his inks can be very overpowering. Several issues in the future, Jerry Ordway inked Staten, and it's probably the best I've ever seen Staten's pencils look. Absolutely gorgeous. I wish they had worked together more, but as far as I can remember, this was their only pairing. Were you interested in getting back to that Huntress material at all? I've been meaning to ask you. Not right now. No, no, I know not now. I'm just talking like ever. At some point. You know, maybe we could throw it into Back to the Bins or Comics Monthly Monday or something like that. Well, I ask because I I had actually considered, you know, while we record, you know, these episodes and get several in the can before we do our relaunch, I had considered maybe tackling some of this stuff that we had, you know, either skipped over or had talked about doing or, you know, just, you know, like this Huntress material, like say like the Huntress material and maybe even that Wonder Woman, you know, where one, where we went to the earth to Wonder Woman for a while, you know, in the Wonder Woman title and maybe doing that stuff is like solo filler, you know, while, while the audience waits for us to come back with these episodes. And I just wondered, I don't want to do anything like that without you. If you're actually interested in that material. We'll throw off our number, episode numbering at this point, but <laughs> unless you want to do them as special episodes. Oh, that's yeah, because we've already. Re- oh, okay, I see what you say. Yeah, all right. That's up to you. Um, I, you know, if you wanted to cover those well, on if, your own, if, it wouldn't hurt my feelings. Well, what I was thinking actually was to do something like you know, Tales of the Justice Society of America presents you know the yeah. Huntress or something. You know what I mean? So they would actually be specials. 
Uh, well, but, if you, if you wanted to do that, it would not hurt my feelings, sir. Okay. I, I if really if I can find the time, you know, both to read them and and you know come up with a decent you know solo discussion of them, then yeah, that might that might. Okay. Uh, your comments about the top quality of spelling and punctuation in your reader emails hits homes. Some of my uh, biggest pet peeves are spelling, word uses, word usage, and punctuation. Bugs the hell out of me when I was reading a forum thread and find people there, there when there is, sorry, it bugs the hell out of me when I'm reading a forum thread and find people using there, T-H-E-R-E, when T-H-E-I-R is called for, or T-O-O instead of T-O. I know that there are plenty of people in my age group who do this, but the main culprit seems to be people under 25. Blame it on a combination of text speak and failing schools, although I won't venture into that because a two page rant would ensue. <laughs> Until next time, Stan. I think most everything that's wrong you can blame on people under 25. <laughs> yes. All right, last email for this episode is by Jose A. Rivera. He's commenting on episode 35. He says, Hey guys. You recently talked about how if DC were to do Earth 2 again, how it wouldn't show up on your radar anymore. You know what? Hell yes! Michael said it best. Crisis on Infinite Earths was a promise DC made to rewrite continuity from scratch, more or less. Yeah, there were some holes to fill, especially with the history of the JSA, but for the most part, it was a reboot uh, that they stuck to for a good while. That is, until Infinite Crisis rolled around. Much like a guy riding a bike backwards, DC backpedaled like you wouldn't believe. They tried to bring back the multiverse without bringing back the multiverse. This is a huge problem I have in comics today with how stories are told. Two prime examples are Infinite Crisis and the controversial Spider-Man One More Day. The endings to those two books read more like the publishers throwing the ultimate... Deus Ex Machina? Is that how you say that? Damn, I hate that expression because I never know if I'm pronouncing I've, it right. I've always said Deus Ex Machina. Okay. Uh, out there, rather than a logical endpoints to the stories they set up, Infinite Crisis has Superboy Prime and Alexander Luthor trying to undo the merged Earths that Crisis on Infinite Earths set up. One More Day tried to undo most of Spider-Man's history just so they could go back to the way things were. What do these things have in common? Well, they both fucking piss me off, for one thing. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, the idea that certain writers took an easy way out and used plot contrivances to force their uh, agendas of how current comics handcuff you creatively and how you can go back to the way things were. Perhaps this is me being a Monday morning quarterback. Oh, it's so hard to just... I, I, just, I think I should just plow through this... But it's so hard not to comment on every point because so far, I man, I completely agree with everything he's saying. And I know I'm speaking as a fan when I say this, but there was a great opportunity with both stories to take advantage of the idea that you can't go home again. Allow me to explain. Superboy Prime and Alexander Luthor tried to make things back to how they used to be. The world had changed while they were away, and while I'm not a fan of how dark DC got, I was insulted by the punching the walls of reality gimmick. <laughs> if at the end of Infinite Crisis their plan had backfired and they couldn't separate the merged Earth, their failure would have made for great tragedy. They would have seen life as they had known it is gone. For me, that's a stronger story, and it doesn't go back on the promise DC had made with Crisis on Infinite Earths. 
You know, I like that idea. I like that idea a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't take credit for this. It was Jason Murphy of the League of Extremely Ordinary Gentlemen podcast who talked about how uh, he would have ended one more day. You know, I've never heard of that podcast. It sounds interesting. Peter still makes the deal with Mephisto to give up his marriage to Mary Jane and save Aunt May by changing things back to the way they used to be. But in the midst of Peter getting what he wants, Doctor Strange, who had previously showed up in the storyline, would uh, come to him and say, Peter, this is nice, but you know you can't live in this fantasy world. May lived a long and happy life. She loves you and you love her, but it's time to let her go. You know in your heart it's the right thing to do. He'd snap out of it. Aunt May would finally be allowed to pass on and Peter Parker stays married to the woman he loves, knowing that in life, you have to find strength even in the hardest decisions, which is basically every major Spider-Man story, making his actual decision in one more day all the more stupid. Here, Here's the here's the thing with that. I, I, I agree with Jose's sentiments, but uh, Peter originally was, was okay with letting her go. He didn't want to let his marriage go. It was Mary Jane who was pushing it so hardcore. Right. I mean, end of the day, Peter made a deal with the devil, and you can't get away from that, even though Marvel has now said that never happened. Um, With omit one moment in time. Oh, God. See, I could be completely wrong, but to my recollection, I don't know that I've ever publicly on a podcast spoken about my feelings about One More Day. I think you have, but go have on. I? Yeah. Well, it's just for me. I just if if I have, I don't know if I made this point or not. If I have, I apologize. I just want to re-emphasize one thing: is that for me, it's not about the marriage. I, I could care one way or the other about whether the marriage exists, whether the marriage is annulled, what whatever. It's not about the marriage for me. What it's all about is the fact that Spider-Man. You know, one of the most popular superheroes in the world made a deal essentially with Satan. That's my beef with that story. Now, I'm not, I'm not thumping my Bible. I'm not getting on some sort of religious high horse. I'm simply saying that that's fucking disgraceful, and Marvel should be ashamed of themselves. Kids read this stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. Whether you want to deny it or not, how much comics have grown up, and, you know, it's not for kids anymore, and all that bullshit that they're constantly telling us about how adult comics are. Kids read Spider-Man. And I don't want my kids reading a Spider-Man story where Spider-Man makes a deal with Satan. I just don't. I think it's wrong. I think they should be ashamed of themselves. That's my beef with One More Day. Anyway, continuing Jose's uh, email here. Uh, The problem with how these big stories are told these days is that the writers and publishers want to have their cake and eat it too. In a way, I agree with you uh, both that I'm glad DC didn't bring back Earth 2 and stick the JSA there. What's done is done and there's no going back. As much as I love Earth 2 and all these stories you've been telling us, what happened to the team's history post-crisis was done in such a way that I could buy uh, that I could was done in such a way that I could buy it happened. Every now and then, you need some form of change to keep things interesting and fresh. The problem with comics today is that change is equivalent to a uh, landmine field. Your chances of getting through it happily are very slim. Yes. Well, that's my little rant. Uh, Though I seem a little angry, just know that your discussions on comics, as well as our beloved Golden Age heroes, do cause us to think. That's what a good show should do. Thank you. Sincerely, Jose A. Rivera. Thank you very much, Jose, for an awesome 
thought-provoking email. email because I agree with so many, so many of your points. Um, I was very... You know, I, I had the same feeling when Infinite Crisis was approaching as I, I do a lot of times present day when I see like a movie trailer for some property that I really want there to be like an awesome movie for or like an awesome sequel for. I, I, I had this nervousness in the pit of my stomach that, you know, Crisis on Infinite Earths, as I've said many times, was my Watchmen. It's my favorite comic book event ever. It's one of my favorite comic book stories. And I was very nervous that they were revisiting that story because I had the worst feeling that that it wasn't so much going to be a sequel is that it was going to be an unraveling. And that's pretty much what they did. It turns out you were right. And <sighs> Jeff Johns, for, for all the praise that he gets and for, tr- honestly, some of the really awesome things that he's done in comics, I just don't hold him in the same at the same level as Marv Wolfman. I don't think he has the same respect for the characters. I don't think he had the same knowledge and the same, uh, what do I want to say? Like, you know, just the, the same working ability that, that Wolfman had. And ultimately I find that story not only unsatisfying, but it, it just, it irritates me. It really bothers me what spun out of that story. I, you know, it just, it's not, it's not worthy of Crisis on Infinite Earths, in my opinion. I just didn't enjoy it, and I certainly didn't like what came out of it. And I don't like that he just... He either didn't have a grasp on certain characters, or uh, he just disregarded, you know, what they had been, because I, I, I just... I can live with Superboy becoming Superboy Prime and all that. I kind of like where that went eventually. Yeah, it, was, it, it, it wasn't awful. But I'll never forgive what happened with, with Alexander Luthor, and even Superman of Earth 2, to a certain degree, was used as a villain in that story. That, well, that he came cool. around at the end and had a pretty good send-off. And, yeah. And, and the, one, the, the, the interesting thing about his death is that when he dies in the sky, you see Lois and Superman together and I had an opportunity to speak with George Perez uh, about his, you know, his work in Infinite Crisis, and he said that he put that in there. No one wrote it. He just put it in there, and he didn't care. <laughs> he right. Was, they, that's what they deserved. He said. So I've often uh, wondered how he feels about that story. You know, I mean, I know he illustrated it and all, but was it just a job, did, or did it? You know, did he like it, or did it bother him, or you know? It'd be interesting to know. If, uh, faux show. Yes, be. I just said faux show. <laughs> I don't feel bad about it. <coughs> Excuse me. So, that is the end of the episode, folks. Another an, another one bites the dust. <laughs> I'm not a really big fan of that song. Um, as usual, this issue has not been reprinted. But again, I will point out, it has been talked about on uh, Tom versus, versus the JLA. The sh- so. Yes. Check out, uh, it's a great show. Love that show. Thank you for listening to another exciting episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America, hosted by Scott H. Gardner and Michael R. Bailey. If you like this show, check out Back to the Bins, where Mike and I talk about random back issues from the past. You can find that at www.2truefreaks.com 
www.libson.com. Scott has another podcast that he hosts with his childhood friend and former personal masseuse and fry cook to Oprah Winfrey, Chris Honeywell, called Two True Freaks, which, like Tales and Back to the Bins, can be found at www.twotruefreaks.libson.com. Mike has a few other podcasts that he either hosts or co-hosts because he loves the sound of his own voice as well. The first is Views from the Longbox, which is Mike's solo show and can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. Then there's From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which Mike hosts with Jeffrey Taylor, which can be found at both www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailytude.com. Scott and I have gigantic egos, and we love to hear from the listeners. You can reach the show by writing to talesofthejsa at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and come back next week for another installment of the Tales of the Justice Society of America. Let's get this show on the road, gang. Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero Superman, Superman.
The Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring the thrilling adventures of Superman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast, Superman in the Bronze Age, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, Superman Forever Radio, the Superman Vidcast, the world's best podcast, the SFR Daily Planet, and Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com, as well as the audio dramas Superman, Last Son of Krypton, and Supergirl, Last Daughter of Krypton, from Pendant Audio Productions. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, J. David Weeder, Cayman Stoll, I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co-host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Hey kids, comics! Hey Michael! Yes? We have to record a promo for our podcast. I've got one. Read our podcast. Read... Our podcast. You do know this is an audio medium. Watch our podcast. Well, you can watch podcasts, but not ours, because let's face it, we've got faces for radio. Uh, no, wait, I've got it. Give me a second, right? What? Just listen to our podcast. Listen to our podcast. Snap it. It's short, sweet. I'm liking it. It's good. It's great. Not exactly telling people what our podcast's about, though, is it? We read comics. We read comics. That's true. That's good. Liking it. Liking this pitch. Carry on. Right. Talk about comics. We do, we talk about comics, we read comics, and then we talk about them because we can't talk about them before we read them. Excellent, keep going. And then we sing Badly! Yes, well, badly is purely subjective, but how many other comic book podcasts do you know where people sing? Hey, comics! Every Thursday at APLayland.podomatic.com. Hey,